Awesome. Good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas is right. Amen. And Merry Christmas to all of our folks that are traveling. I know we have quite a few people from our church that are on the East Coast right now, so pray for them, certainly. I was talking to my aunt yesterday. She lives in Michigan, which I know is not the East Coast, but she lives in Michigan, and she was telling me about the frost that was forming on the inside of her windows, and then she asked me how the weather was where I was. And I said, you don't want to know. I said, I'm wearing short sleeves right now. I had to take my coat off because it was too hot outside to wear it. So, But we've got a lot of people traveling. We've got people traveling in Spain and in India and all over the place. So pray for them that they're just blessed as they celebrate Christmas with their families. And we are super blessed to have you here with us uh, this morning. What a wonderful day of all days, right, to get to come together and to worship the Lord. Uh, I did look it up. And I want you to know it's not as simple as you might think when Christmas Day actually falls on a Sunday. I don't think anybody else but me probably cared about that. But you would think that it would come about every seven years. And yet with leap years and all the rest, it can be anywhere between six years and as many as 11 years uh, when that happens. And in fact, the next time that Christmas Day falls on a Sunday is going to be 2033. So all of that to say, we are super glad that you're here today. It's a great day to be together on a Sunday to get to celebrate Christmas with you and really to celebrate what is unmistakably the most significant birth in all of human history, right? the birth of Jesus Christ himself, right? born into the world, born into history, not just to be born, but of course, ultimately to provide us with our most desperate need, right? To provide us with our salvation and to provide us with that forgiveness of sin. And just really in order to enable us to begin, what we've talked about so often is that single great thing that each one of us has been created for, and that's to have that personal relationship with our creator God that's made available now through First the birth and then the work and then ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. So of course that's really what it is that we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. And we're going to actually spend just a few minutes, a few less minutes than usual, you'll be happy to hear. But just a few minutes in the scriptures this morning, um, just considering what is really just one wonderful aspect of what it is that makes Christmas the wonderful event that it is. And when I say wonderful, I, I'm using the word wonderful in the fullest sense of the word in that it is filled full of wonder. Just a wonder in terms of what actually happened on that very first Christmas day uh, just over 2,000 years ago. So let's pray and we're going to jump in, uh, look at a passage of scripture this morning. Uh, and I hope that you're going to be ministered to by it. So, Father, we thank you so much. Uh, we, Lord, we do thank you that, that Sunday, Lord, it falls on Christmas Day this year, Lord. And we thank you for the opportunity to be here and to celebrate the birth of your son. Father, we pray that as we go to your word that you would... Um, Lord, that you'd quicken our spirits, Lord, give us ears to hear and help us just to discover or to rediscover the wonder of the Christmas story. And so, Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. We pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I should have said, if you don't have a Bible, um, I usually say you're going to need one, but actually as a Christmas gift to you this morning, I'm going to put the verses up on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. But if you'd like a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. You can raise your hand and somebody will bring one down to you. You can use a Bible on your phone. Any Bible we always say is a good Bible. So um, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you would know we've kind of taken uh, a sort of a telescopic approach, if you will, in considering Christmas. And it was a few Sundays back when Pastor Jeff sort of uh, started us off by looking at the Christmas story itself out of Luke chapter 2 as really what is an important reminder, he said, to all of us. An important reminder of God's faithfulness towards us and of his love for us. And, and then last week, we sort of stepped back a bit, right? We kind of zoomed out a little from the actual Christmas story itself. And we looked at the coming of Jesus in a bit of a bigger context, right? We looked at what was the bigger picture of the Christmas story. And we considered the reality that the Christmas story is really just a part of a bigger story. It's a part, a beautiful part, of this part of the redemptive plan of God kind of written in four acts in human history. And to see that, we went back, and you remember we started at the beginning of the story. We started all the way back in the book of Genesis. And now this morning, as we consider Jesus and his coming into the world, again, that first Christmas 2,000 years ago, we want to step back even further. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to step back before the beginning of the Christmas story, and we're able to do that with the help of the Apostle John and the beginning of his account of his gospel. So you can go ahead and turn. We're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so the fourth book in the New Testament. And it's the gospel according to John that really takes us back, if you will, before the beginning of the beginning of the story, right? And it's there where we read just in verse one of John chapter one, it says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now these two verses, if you're not familiar with them, they are two of the most profound, but can also be a couple of the most puzzling verses in the whole of the Bible. As John is introducing to us this idea of the eternally existent word of God, right, which already existed, it says they're at the beginning. And the word word as some of you probably already know, but the word, word, there in that verse, it translates into a very special Greek word. It's the word logos, right? And the logos was much more than just a word for the word, word, right? But the very idea of the logos had these deep and rich roots, both in Jewish and in Greek thinking. Jewish rabbis often referred to God, especially when they talked about him in his more personal aspects. They referred to him in terms of his word. They often referred to God himself as the word of God. It's interesting, Exodus chapter 19, 
in verse 17, which probably reads in our translations, it says that Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Well, actually, in some of the ancient Hebrew editions of the Old Testament, that verse is rendered, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the word of God. Because in the mind of the ancient Jews, that phrase, the word of God, was uniquely used very often to refer to nothing less than God himself. Now the Greek philosophers, they saw the logos as the power that put sense into the world. So it was what made the world orderly instead of chaotic. And so the logos was the power that set the world in perfect order and that kept the world going in that perfect order. So they kind of saw the logos, they called it the ultimate reason that controlled all things. And so what John is doing here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, in these very first words of the gospel, is he, he is saying to both the Jews and to the Greeks, he says, look, for centuries you've been talking and you've been thinking and you've been writing about the word, right, about the logos. Now I am about to tell you who he is. And then it's down in verse 14 of this same chapter that he does exactly that. He tells us when he writes, look down at verse 14 with me, when he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here John meets both the Jewish mind, he meets the Gentile mind, kind of exactly where they were at, if you will. And he explains Jesus and his coming into the world in these terms that they would have already very readily understood. He was, he is the Logos, right? He's the word of God. He is God himself. He is the ultimate power in the universe. And John wants us to see, right, back there in verse 1, he wants us to see that the word, right, Jesus himself is not just the beginning, but he's the beginning of the beginning, right? That he was there in the beginning before anything else was there. And for us today, I think especially on a Christmas morning, what I want us really to be conscious of as we consider and we celebrate his birth together is that Jesus didn't begin his existence at the moment of his birth, right? Jesus didn't begin to exist on Christmas Day in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He didn't even begin to exist at the moment of his miraculous conception in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, right? But the existence of Jesus, John tells us here, it stretches all the way back, right? All the way back into an infinite eternity. And Jesus effectively affirmed this very same truth. Remember in John chapter 8 when he was confronted by the Jewish religious leaders and then he said to them, he said, most assuredly I say to you, he said, before Abraham was, I am, he says. Before Abraham existed, I existed. Jesus says, I am the I am, the eternally existent one without beginning and without end. 
We saw Jesus declare the same thing as well, the very first chapter of the book of Revelation. Remember, John has this incredible vision of Jesus in his glory, and Jesus says this, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. When we studied through Colossians, we saw the Apostle Paul write to the church there at Colossae. In Colossians 1, he says that Jesus is before all things and that in him all things consist. And the point of all of this is that God the Son, Jesus, is just as eternal as God the Father. And so what John effectively is saying here in verse 1 is that when the beginning began, Jesus was already there and that further look at verse 3 further John tells us that all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made so not only was Jesus there before all things but he's the creator of all the things that are there now right so it was Jesus right the word of God who spoke the creation into existence. Did you know in Genesis chapter 1, every time we read, then God said, right, 10 different times in just that first chapter alone, when we read, then God said, it was Jesus, right, the Son of God, the Word of God, who said it. God the Father created the world through the Son in the power of his Spirit. Again, Paul writes to the Colossians that by him, speaking of Jesus, that all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. Right? The writer to the book of Hebrews says that God at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds. So everything that we can see, both through a microscope or through a telescope, or things that are too far away even to see with a telescope, all of it was created by Jesus. And further, in verse 4, John tells us that in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So now John goes further. He says, not only is Jesus the source of all physical life, but also of a spiritual life that can't be found anywhere but in him. That only he can give it because only he has it. Right? And Jesus isn't just one among many who can give spiritual life, at least not who can give it the way that God intends it, right? that abundant life, that eternal life. But he's the only one, John says, who can do that. He alone is the true light. He's the source of all spiritual life and of all spiritual light. And again, the Holy Spirit declares the same thing again through John, but this time in his first epistle. In 1 John 5, it says that this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So for those of us who are already Christians, right, all of this spiritual eternal life and this light that we enjoy every day 
right? Knowing God personally and being able now to pray to him and to be led by him and to receive his power through the Holy Spirit, right? To receive revelation from the Holy Spirit. All of these things, we possess all of that because of Jesus. And the point of all of this, right, in all of these verses is that the Holy Spirit here writing through John wants us to know, right, through this revelation and this background that he provides us to that birth 2,000 years ago, but he wants us to know from these very first words of the, this gospel that this is who was born on that first Christmas day, right? This is the one who was born there into the world in that city of Bethlehem, that this is the child who was born into the world as a babe, right? This is the one who, the, again, verse 14 says, this is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us that we might behold his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is who left heaven and took on a human body in order to be able to dwell with us, to come here so that we would know what God is like and to come in order to provide this way of salvation for each one of us. It was the eternally existent Son of God, right? God the Son, the Creator Himself, the Logos. Right? This is exactly what Charles Wesley had tried to express in, that, in his wonderful hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, in that one verse where he says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hailed the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And I think that as we consider this reality, I have to say there are so very many things about the incarnation, right? about God himself taking on human flesh, about the birth of Jesus and his introduction into human history. There are so many things about this story that impact us. But I think that perhaps the single greatest thing, I think maybe on an emotional level or on a, a kind of a worship level to me, Right, year in and year out, the thing that rises to the surface and tops everything else is when we consider the immense sacrifice that's represented here in this birth. Yes, in his birth. Right, so long before the cross, long before his death, before his burial, before his resurrection, there is a tremendous sacrifice that's represented just in the incarnation itself. Understand that when it says back there in verse 1 that Jesus was with God, and then in verse 2 when it says that he was in the beginning with God, the word there for with is a very special word. It, it has a kind of a picture that it paints in the original language of being face to face. Right? And it's a word that's intended to describe the incredible closeness of Jesus' relationship with the Father. Just to, to try to communicate the intimacy of that mysterious relationship between God the Father and God the Son, this relationship that they had enjoyed together for all of eternity. And it was this incredible intimacy that both the Father and the Son 
were willing to sacrifice on some kind of mystery shrouded level to allow Jesus to come into the world to provide us with this salvation and with the forgiveness of our sins. And to me, some of the most searching and, and sort of the most haunting words that we hear Jesus utter in the course of his public life, right, in the course of his public ministry, they're spoken by him in, in direct reference, right, in light of this disruption of this eternal intimacy on some level between God the Father and God the Son. Of course, we're all very familiar with the cry of Jesus from the cross, right? When he cries out in Matthew 27, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, quoting one of the messianic Psalms, but this is that point in his ministry as the Father turned his face from the Son because at that moment, Jesus had become for us our sin, right? He was bearing the penalty of the sins of the world there on the cross. And we can hear the excruciating pain and the cry of Jesus. But even before that, right, even just concerning, I think, the incarnation itself, there was a loss that Jesus endured. And he expresses it Remember, it's what we call his high priestly prayer. It's when he prays to the Father before his crucifixion. It's recorded for us in John 17. But here's what Jesus said to the Father. He said, Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, he says, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Understand, before the incarnation, right, the Father and the Son had never ceased to be fully and to be inseparably one, right? They shared this glory as they shared this intimacy, but in some way that we don't understand, there was some indescribable something that happened in his incarnation, let alone the crucifixion, but there was a separation that occurred that had never happened before and we know will never happen again. There was a rupture, if you will, in that inseparable intimacy of the Godhead as Jesus left heaven and came to earth. Think about it. God the Son, Jesus, he left heaven. And of course, I think just considering that, it just adds to our sense of wonder and our sense of marvel as we consider his coming, right? Yes, we marvel at who he was and, and what that child born at Bethlehem was, but I think we should also consider this morning what he left of the glory of heaven in order just to come down to this very fallen, messy world. He left all of that in order to save us from our sins. So not just to consider the fact that he came, but think about what it was that he left in order to come. Now, I have never been to heaven, although I'm on my way there, praise the Lord, right? Along with so many of you I know already. But this fallen world is all that we have ever known. And the only thing that we'll ever know of heaven and earth is what it's going to be like one day to leave earth and to go to heaven. 
we will never experience what Jesus had to experience to leave heaven and come to earth. Right? Think about that, to leave heaven in all of its glory and all of the sights and the sounds and the colors and the purity and the holiness and all of the sinlessness, right? The peace and the perfection, right? This glory of heaven, this beauty and holiness that throughout the scriptures it leaves even the most eloquent of men speechless. We think about Isaiah, right? Isaiah tried to describe for us just a vision he was given of heaven. And in Isaiah chapter 6, he talks about the year that King Uzziah died, and I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. He says, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. He says and the house was filled with smoke. And then just as he finishes up, he's at a total loss for words. And the very last thing he says, he says, woe is me for I am undone was undone by this vision he was given of heaven. The apostle Paul, we know the Bible tells us, he actually saw the glory of heaven. And yet 14 years later, we know that he was still trying to figure out a way just to be able to put in words what he witnessed. Remember when he wrote to the church of Corinth, he says this, he says, I know a man in Christ, he's speaking of himself, he says, who 14 years ago, he says, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. But he says, such a one was caught up to the third heaven, up into paradise, and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So Paul's saying, look, I would love to describe it to you. Right? But not only can I not describe, not only can I not put into human words what I saw, I can't even attempt to formulate in human words the things that I heard and the things that I saw in that realm. He says it would be unlawful or that literally it would be not possible because human words and human understanding are incapable of really truly grasping how glorious and incredible heaven really is and yet Jesus left all of that at the incarnation and we know that throughout his time here he longed for the glory of heaven again but only after he had paid the price for us to be able to go there as well and we can try as we may with all the illustrations we can muster to try to understand it, but it would be like leaving a life of luxury, right? Somebody who had grown up in this indescribable affluence and they knew nothing but the finest food and the finest homes and the finest education and the finest environments and they lived their entire lives in those kind of an environment and then to lift them up out of that affluence, right? And then to plunk them down again perhaps into one of the worst slums in the world today. One of the worst slums in Calcutta or in 
Bombay, right? These places that we only see pictures of, the places that we only read stories about. And we think about that kind of a picture, and yet that would hardly even scratch the surface, I think, in an attempt to describe the gap between the quality of life and the glory of heaven and the quality of life in this very fallen place called planet Earth, as beautiful as so much of it might seem, at least to us. Because understand, we're not only speaking physically, but even more so, imagine speaking emotionally. Talking about morality and talking about spirituality, to leave this place of purity and to come into this environment of absolute impurity, it was an amazing and a humbling sacrifice that was made by Jesus just at his incarnation. And then further, we think about what happened when Jesus came. He didn't, you know, Jesus didn't come into the world to a hero's welcome, which is certainly what he deserved, but he didn't receive that at all. But look what John tells us next in verse five. He says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And Jesus came knowing it would be different. He came knowing that he wouldn't be seen or be understood for who he is. Knowing that he wouldn't be loved or appreciated or adored. Knowing that he wouldn't receive what was his eternal portion in heaven, right? This uninterrupted worship amongst the angels, right? These uncountable millions of angels, Right? His portion was the honor and the glory and the worship and the unending praise that was due as their creator. Right? That was his rightful portion, his position from eternity past, long before there were even angels. Right? That's what he was doing. He left all that. He comes into this world, like we said, not to a hero's welcome, Right, not to be loved or appreciated or adored in the way that he was in heaven, but look further down, jump down with me to verse 10 and 11, where it says that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So John tells us here what Jesus already knew, right, that he came into the world largely to be rejected by it. You think about the unimaginable disrespect and the humiliation that was extended to Jesus from the moment of his birth, right? Laid there in a feeding trough for animals, right? And then we think about the way that that continued all the way through those 33 and a half short years of his life, right? It's unimaginable from the perspective of heaven the way he would be opposed and the way that he'd be humiliated solely for his work to try to save us from our sins. Again, it was Isaiah who said that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, he said, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And yet, Jesus came. But why, right? Well, John tells us in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So knowing the humiliation, right, knowing the rejection, Jesus still came so that others, right, so that people like you and people like me, we would have the opportunity Right, to go against the stream, not just of human history, but against the stream of this current age, that we'd have the opportunity to believe in him for our salvation, to receive him, it says there, into our hearts, and to become, as John describes here, to become his children, right, as we're born again spiritually. So all of this is what his coming actually accomplished. And yet today on Christmas... I think what we need to ask ourselves is what was it that was behind all of that? Right? What was behind the incarnation initially? What was behind the provision of our salvation ultimately? What was behind you know, the, the, the apex of the ministry of Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection? We know that he did it. We recognize the sacrifice behind it. We recognize what he accomplished through it. But the question is, why did he do it, right? What was the motive behind the sacrifice? What could possibly motivate Jesus to do all of this? But what is there in the heart of God that could be greater than the ugliness of this world, or greater than all of the ugliness of sin, greater than the humiliation and the rejection and the sacrifice and the sorrow. What could possibly be greater than all of that? And the answer, of course, is that behind all of that is the love of God. Right? So before the beginning of the Christmas story is the love of God. And the Apostle John makes this so very clear to us. Again, in his first epistle, he says that in this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That means the full satisfying payment to be the propitiation for our sins. And when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, right, he prays for them right at the end of that magnificent introduction there in chapter one to his letter. And this is what the Apostle Paul prays. He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I'll tell you something this morning. I have to confess to you, and I hope that I'm not alone. Maybe I am alone. You guys are smarter than I am, but I'm going to confess this nonetheless. And that's this. There is nothing in the whole world I think that, that silences me more fully or mystifies me more fully. There's nothing that stops me in my tracks than the love of God. So the righteousness of God makes perfect sense to me, right? The holiness of God makes perfect sense to me. The perfection of God, that makes complete sense to me. 
though, though I think we would admit, right, each one of those things we only understand to a degree, right? But I, there, there's a mystery that enshrouds all of these things, but I think I have a fairly firm grasp on those things. But the love of God, his love for me, his love for you, his love for mankind, right? That, that love of Christ that Paul says passes knowledge. It's a love that's greater than all of our sin. It's a love that's greater than all that we've ever done or ever thought. It's a love that's greater than our idolatry and our weakness and our rebellion and our fallenness and our brokenness. Right? It's this love that's willing to pay this kind of a personal price that we've just spent a few moments considering together this morning. You think about the expression of that kind of love. And I have to be honest and tell you, I'm afraid I'm no closer to making a dent in really understanding the love of God. Right? In all these years now that I've been a Christian than I did the day that I became a Christian. I cannot even begin to get my mind remotely around the love of God. And the more I think about it, I'm afraid the more confused I am about it, right? But then I realize I think the more that I think about it, the more that I think perhaps it's not even really intended to be understood supremely as much as it's just simply there to be accepted. The love of God is simply there for us to accept it as a mystery and to somehow treasure it for the mystery that it is. Right? And to really never lose that sense of wonder and that sense of awe that we have about God's love. And I think that we are at an especially at a disadvantage here in America because one of the things that we fight and again, we probably can't help this living where we live. But one of the biggest blessings that we have as Americans is this Christian heritage that we have. Right? And it is, it's an absolute blessing. But there can also be a curse that comes along with that blessing. And I think it's the curse, in this case, the curse of familiarity. And sometimes, you know, you think about the average person, and, and maybe there's some of you here this morning, but you think about the average person here in America who's not yet a Christian. And what happens is that because of this wonderful heritage that we have, right, this Christian heritage that we have here in the United States, because of that, by and large, if you grew up here, the God that you were introduced to over and over again, the God who has now formed kind of our framework of what God is really like, it is the God of the Bible, right? This wonderful God of the Bible, this loving God. And yet what happens over time is that we just sort of take for granted in our culture that God is love. And we think, well, of course God is love, right? He ought to be that. And we even maybe find ourselves kind of taking on that thing that we so often dislike about modern culture. We take on kind of this sense of entitlement that we deserve God to be a God of love because at least he owes us that much, right? But here's the truth. The truth is God didn't need to be a God of love. Right? God could be a God of wrath. 
he could be a God of anger. He could be a vengeful, cruel, kind of a capricious, perpetually angry God, not unlike the gods, right? The false pagan gods that so many people have been worshiping down through the ages and still worship in darkness today. But we have this kind of an ingrained understanding and this expectation of him being this God of love. But the truth is he didn't need to be that. And yet he is exactly that. But to never ever lose our awe of that truth. Never ever lose the awe that he is in fact a God of love. To never lose the wonder of the fact that he's the one that we found at the end of our search, right? Never ever to take for granted that he somehow loves us and for some inexplicable reason, right? And I think then to allow just that understanding to produce this sense of awe and this wonder and this thanksgiving in us that by the Holy Spirit we can only possibly express in our worship and in our praise as we offer it to this God who loves us the way that he does. Right, and really just to join as we celebrate his birth this morning, to join in with all of those heavenly hosts, right, that we sing about, right, who broke out in their own worship, right? Remember when the angels announced the birth to those shepherds, they were out there keeping their flocks by night and the angels burst out and they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. So this morning we can celebrate, right? We can say, Praise the Lord. Even if you think you have nothing else that you can praise the Lord for, you can praise the Lord that there is something greater than your guilt. There's something greater than your rebellion. There is something greater than your sin, and it's the love of God. And it was expressed in the provision of a Savior, right? Expressed in the birth of that baby 2,000 years ago but to understand that it was expressed in the heart and the mind of God so very, very long before that. Right? Way, way back before the beginning. Right? Back before the beginning of the Christmas story. And just to allow that to work in our hearts and to produce again that sense of awe and that wonder so that we, like the shepherds, Remember the shepherd kind of at the end of that account of the Christmas story in Luke 2. It says that then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord. And we do pray, Lord, that you would birth afresh and anew in each one of our hearts, Lord, again, just that, that fresh sense of awe and of wonder as we consider the sacrifice of Jesus, Lord, consider your sacrifice as you sent him to the earth, Lord, born as a baby so long ago on that day in Bethlehem. And Lord, we celebrate that today. We celebrate everything that, uh, that is a part of that. And we celebrate that sacrifice today, Lord. And we thank you for it. And we thank you for your love. 
We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.